0: Welcome to American Epistles, the story of our country, one letter at a time. I'm your host, Susan Ochere. American Epistles explores our history through the letters, journals, and diaries of ordinary Americans. If you're a new friend, welcome. If you're a returning friend, thank you for your continued support. If you haven't already done so, please leave a rating at Apple Podcasts or on Podchaser, which will help more friends find the show. Please also consider becoming a financial supporter via Patreon, as Megan Oliveira recently decided to do, for which you will receive my undying gratitude. You'll also get early access to episodes, whether you choose to contribute $1, $3, or $5 per month. Go to AmericanEpistles.com and click Support on the main menu. Now I'll continue with the letters of Eleanor Pruitt Rupert, whom we now know as Eleanor Stewart. The last episode was devoted to the Edmondson family. Today, we'll hear more about Cora Bell Edmondson and others of Eleanor's neighbors. She also talks about the homestead in a second brief letter. Here we go. October 16th, 1911, Dear Mrs. Coney. I once heard Sedalia Lane telling some of her experiences, and she said she, quote, surreptitiously stole along, end quote. One day, when I thought the coast was clear, I was surreptitiously examining the contents of the tool chest with a view towards securing to myself such hammers, saws, and what else I might need in doing some carpentry work I had planned. The tool chest is kept in the granary. Both it and the granary are usually kept locked. Now the good man has an idea that a woman needs no tools, and the use and misuse of his tools have led to numbers of inter-household wars. I was gloating over my opportunity, and also making the best of it, when a medley of burring Scotch voices brought me to a quick realization that discretion is the better part of valor. So I went into seclusion behind a tall oat bin. It seemed that two neighbors whom I have never seen were preparing to go to town and had come to get some tools, and to see if th- if the steward would lend them each a team. Now Mr. Stewart must be very righteous, because he certainly regardeth his beast, although he doesn't always love his neighbor as himself. He was willing, however, for friends Tam Campbell and Archie McKetrick to use his teams, but he himself would take a lighter rig and go along, so as to see that his horses were properly cared for and to help out in case of need. They made their plans, set the day, and went their ways. As soon as I could, I made myself scarce about the granary and very busy about the house, and like Josiah Allen, I was in a very, quote, happy-fied state of mind. There is nothing Mr. Stewart likes better than to catch me unprepared for something. I had been wanting to go to town, and he had said I might go with him next time he went, if I was ready when he was. I knew I would not hear one word about the proposed trip, but that only added to the fun. I had plenty of time to make all preparations, so the day before they were to start found me with all in readiness. It was quite early in the spring, and the evenings were quite chilly. We had just finished supper when we heard a great rumbling, and I knew the neighbors Campbell and McKettrick had arrived on their way to town so I began to prepare supper for them I hadn't expected a woman and was surprised when I saw the largest most ungainly person I have ever met come shambling toward me she was Aggie McKettrick. she is tall and raw boned she walks with her toes turned out she has a most peculiar lurching gait like a camel's she has skin the color of a new saddle and the oddest straggly straw-colored hair. She never wears corsets and never makes her waists long enough, so there is always a streak of gray undershirt visible about her waist. Her skirts are never long enough either, and she knits her own stockings. Those inclined can always get a good glimpse of blue and white striped hose. She said, quote, I guess you are the missus, end quote. AND THAT WAS EVERY WORD SHE SAID UNTIL I HAD SUPPER ON THE TABLE. THE MEN WERE BUSY WITH THEIR TEAMS, AND SHE SAT WITH HER FEET IN MY OVEN, EYEING MY EVERY MOVEMENT. I TOLD HER WE HAD JUST HAD OUR SUPPER, BUT SHE WAITED UNTIL I HAD THEIRS READY, BEFORE SHE ANNOUNCED THAT NEITHER SHE NOR ARCHIE ATE HOT BISCUITS OR STEAK, THAT THEY DIDN'T TAKE TEA FOR SUPPER, PREFERRED COFFEE, AND THAT NEITHER OF THEM WOULD EAT PEACHES OR HONEY so all of my supper was ruled off except the butter and cream. She went down to their wagons and brought up what she wanted, so Tam Campbell was the only one who ate my honey and biscuit. Tam is just a Scot, and with an amazingly close fist, he is very absent-minded. I had met Annie, his wife, and their six children. She told me of his absent-mindedness. Her remedy for his trouble when it came to household needs was to repeat the article two or three times in the list. People out like we are by a year's supply at a time. So a list of needed things is made up and sent into town. Tam always managed to forget a great many things. Well, bedtime came. I offered to show them to their room, but Aggie said, quote, We'll nay sleep in your bed. We'll just bide in the kitchen, end quote. I could not persuade her to change her mind. Tam slept slept at the barn in order to see after the beasties should they need attention during the night. As I was preparing for bed, Aggie thrust her head into my room and announced that she would be up at three o'clock. I am not an early bird, so I thought I would let Aggie get her own breakfast and I told her she would find everything in the pantry. As long as I was awake, I could hear Archie and Aggie talking, but I could not imagine what about. I didn't know their habits so well as I came to later. Next morning, the rumbling of wagons awakened me, but I turned over and slept until after six. There are always so many things to do before leaving that it was nine o'clock before we got started. We had only gotten about two miles when Mr. Stewart remembered he had not locked the granary, so we trotted back. We nooned only a few miles from home. We knew we could not catch the wagons before camping time unless we drove very hard, so Mr. Stewart said we would go by the Edmonsons and spend the night there. I enjoy even the memory of that drive through the short spring afternoon, the warm red sand of the desert, the Wind River Mountains wrapped in the blue veil of distance, the sparse gray-green sage, ugly in itself, but making complete a beautiful picture. The occasional glimpse of the shy beautiful wild creatures. So much happiness can be crowded into so short a time. I was glad though when Corabel's home became a part of our beautiful picture. It is situated among great red buttes and there is a blue lake at the back of the house. Around the lake is a fringe of willows. Their house is a low rambling affair with a long low porch and a red clay roof. Before the house is a cottonwood tree, its gnarled, storm-twisted branches making it seem to have the rheumatiz. Is. There is a hop vine at one end of the porch. It had not come out when we were there, but the dead vine clung hopelessly to its supports. Little Cora Belle just bubbled with delight, and her grandparents were scarcely better than she. Spring house cleaning was just finished, and they have company so seldom that they made us feel that we were doing them a favor by stopping poor old pa hobbled out to help put the team away and when they came back Corabell asked me to help prepare supper so i left mr stewart with granny and pa to listen to their recitals and to taste their many medicines Corabell is really an excellent housekeeper her cooking would surprise many people her bread was delicious and i'm sure i never tasted anything better than the roasted leg of lamb she gave us for supper. I am ashamed to tell you how much I ate of her carrot jam. From where I sat, I had a splendid view of the sunset across the lake. Speaking of things singly, Wyoming has nothing beautiful to offer. Taken all together, it's grandly beautiful, and at sunrise and sunset, the heavens declare his glory. Corabel is so animated and so straightforward so entirely clean in all her thoughts and actions that she commands love and respect at one and the same time. After supper, her grandfather asked her to sing and play for us. Goodness only knows where they got the funny little old organ that Corabell thinks so much of. It has spots all over it of medicine that is spilled at different times, and it has, as Corabel said, lost its voice in spots. But that doesn't set back Corabel at all. She plays away just as if it was all right. Some of the keys keep up a mournful whining and groaning, entirely outside of the tune. Corabel says they play themselves. After several pieces had been endured, Pa said, quote, play my piece, Korribel, quote. So we had Bingen on the Rhine played and sung from A to Izzard. Dear old Pa, his pain-twisted old face just beamed with pride. I doubt if heaven will have for him any sweeter music than his baby's voice. Granny's squeaky, trembly old voice trailed in after Cora Bell's, always a word or two behind. Quote, tell my friends and companions when they meet and scourge around, end quote. That is the way they sang it, but no one would have cared for that if they had noticed with what happy eagerness the two sang together. The grandparents would like to have sat up all night singing and telling of things that happened in bygone days. But poor, tired little Corabell began to nod, so we retired. As we were preparing for bed, it suddenly occurred to Mr. Stewart that I had not been surprised when going to town was mentioned. So he said, quote, Woman, how did it happen that you were ready when I was to gay to the tune, end quote. Oh, I knew you were going, I said, quote, who tell it to ye?" A little bird. Quote, "'Twas some fool woman, mayhap." End quote. I didn't feel it necessary to enlighten him, and I think he is still wondering how I knew. Next morning we were off early, but we didn't come up with the wagons until almost camping time. The great heavily-loaded wagons were creaking along over the sands. The McKetricks me- the were behind, Aggie's big frame swaying and lurching with every jolt of the wagon. They never travel without their German socks. They are great thick things to wear on the outside of their shoes. As we came up behind them, we could see Aggie's big socks dangling and bobbing behind Archie's from where they were tied to the back of the wagon. We could hear them talking and see them gesticulating. When we came nearer, we found they were quarreling, and they kept at it as long as I was awake that night. After the men had disposed of their loads, they and Mr. Stewart were going out of town to where a new coal mine was being opened. I intended to go on the train to Rock Springs to do some shopping. Aggie said she was going also. I suggested that we get a room together, as we would have to wait several hours for the train, but she was suspicious of my motives. She is greatly afraid of being done, so she told me to get my own room and pay for it. We got into town about three o'clock in the afternoon and the train left at midnight. I had gone to my room and Jereen and myself were enjoying a good rest after our fatiguing drive when my door was thrown open and a very angry Aggie strode in. She asked us 50 cents each for our rooms. Aggie paid hers under protest and afterward got to wondering how long she was entitled to its use. She had gone back to the clerk about it and he had told her for that night only. She argued that she should have her room for a quarter, as she would only use it until midnight. When that failed, she asked for her money back, but the clerk was out of patience and refused her that. Aggie was angry all through. She vowed she was being robbed. After she had berated me soundly for submitting so tamely, she flounced back to her own room, declaring she would get even with the robbers. I had to hurry like everything that night to get myself and Jereen ready for the train so I could spare no time for Aggie. She was not at the depot and Jereen and I had to go on to Rock Springs without her. It was only a couple of hours from Green River to Rock Springs so I had a good nap and a late breakfast. I did my shopping and was back at Green River at two in the afternoon. The first person I saw was Aggie. She sat in the depot, glowering at everybody. She had a basket of eggs and a pail of butter, which she had been trying to sell. She was waiting for the night train, the only one she could get back to Rock Springs. I asked her had she overslept. Quote, no, I did not. She replied. Then she proceeded to tell me that, as she had paid for a whole night's use of a room, she had stayed to get its use. That it made her plans miscarry didn't seem to count. After all our business was attended to, we started for home. The wagons were half a day ahead of us. When we came in sight, we could see Aggie fanning the air with her long arms, and we knew they were quarreling. I remarked that I could not understand how persons who hated each other so could live together. Clyde told me I had much to learn and and said that, really, he knew of no other couple who were actually so devoted. He said to prove it, I should ask Aggie into the buggy with me, and he would get in with Archie, and afterwards we would compare notes. He drove up alongside of them, and Aggie seemed glad to make the exchange. As we had the buggy, we drove ahead of the wagons. It seems that Archie and Aggie are each jealous of of the other. Archie is as ugly a little monkey as it would have been possible to imagine. She bemeaned him until at last I asked her why she didn't leave him and added that I would not stand such crankiness for one moment. Then she poured out the vials of her wrath upon my head, only I don't think they were vials, but barrels. After sundown, we made it to where we intended to camp and found that Mrs. O'Shaughnessy had established a sheep camp there and was out with her herd herself, having only Manny, a Mexican boy, she had brought up herself for a herder. She welcomed us cordially and began supper for our entire bunch soon the wagons came and all was confusion for a few minutes getting horses put away for the night aggie went to her wagon as soon as it stopped and made secure her butter and eggs against a possible raid by mrs o'shaughnessy having asked too high a price for them she had failed to sell them and was taking them back after supper we were sitting around the fire Tam going over his account and lamenting that because of his absent-mindedness, he had bought a whole hundred pounds of sugar more than he had needed, had intended. Aggie and Archie silent for once, pouting, I suspect. Clyde smiled across the campfire at me and said, The exchange that follows is perhaps in Scots or Scottish Gaelic. I wasn't able to find a translation, but it's clearly a joke of some, time, some kind. Okay, here it goes. Jin ye had sikkaman as I hay, ye might blither. Jin ye had sikkaman as mine. I began, but Mrs O'Shaughnessy said, Jin ye had sicamon as I hay. End quote. Then we all three laughed, for we had each heard the same thing, and we knew the Macetrics wouldn't fight each other. They suspected us of laughing at them, for Archie said to Aggie. Quote, Aggie lass, it is sport they are making of our love. Tea quote. Quote, is daft they be, Archie lad. Will nay mind their blither. End quote. She arose and shambled across to Archie and hunkered her big self down beside him. We went to bed and left them peaceable for once. I am really ashamed of the way I have treated you, but I know you will forgive me. I am not strong yet, and my eyes are still bothering me, but I hope to be all right soon now, and I promise you a better letter next time. Jerrine is very proud of her necklace. I think they are so nice for children. I can remember how proud I was of mine when I was a child. Please give your brother our thanks, and tell him his little gift made my little girl very happy. I am afraid this letter will seem rather jumbled. I still want the address of your friend in Salem, or any other... I shall find time to write, and I am not going to let my baby prevent me from having many enjoyable outings. We call our boy Henry Clyde for his father. He is a dear little thing, but he is a lusty yeller for baby's rights. With much love, Jereen and her mama. As Eleanor mentions, her son Henry Clyde Stewart Jr. was born in 1911. She doesn't mention two prior pregnancies, a stillborn daughter, Helen, and son, James Wilbur, who died in infancy. And now, the second letter of the episode. October 14, 1911. Dear Mrs. Coney, I think you must be expecting an answer to your letter by now, so I will try to answer your questions as I remember. Your letter has been mislaid. We have been very much rushed all this week. We had the thresher crew two days. I was busy cooking for them two days before they came, and have been busy ever since cleaning up after them. Clyde has taken the thresher on up the valley to thresh for the neighbors, and all the men have gone along, so the children and I are alone. No, I shall not lose my land, although it will be over two years before I can get a deed to it. The five years in which I am required to prove up will have passed by then. I couldn't have held my homestead if Clyde had also been proving up, but he had accomplished that years ago and has his deed, so I am allowed my homestead. Also, I have not yet used my desert right, so I am entitled to one hundred and sixty acres more. I shall file on that much some day when I have sufficient money of my own earning. The law requires a cash payment of 25 cents per acre at the filing and $1 more per acre when final proof is made. I should not have married if Clyde had not promised I should meet all my land difficulties unaided. I wanted the fun and the experience. For that reason, I want to earn every cent that goes into my own land and improvements myself. Sometimes I almost have a brainstorm wondering how I'm going to do it. But I know I shall succeed. Other women have succeeded. I know of several who are now where they can laugh at past trials. Do you know I am a firm believer in laughter? I am real superstitious about it. I think if bad luck came along, he would take to his heels if someone laughed right loudly. I think Jerrine must be born for the law. She always threshes out questions that arise, to her own satisfaction, if to no one else's. She prayed for a long time for her brother. Also, she prayed for some puppies. The puppies came, but we didn't let her know they were here until they were able to walk. One morning, she saw them following their mother, so she danced for joy. When her little brother came, she was plainly disappointed. Mama, she said, did God really make the baby? Yes, dear. Then he hasn't treated us fairly, and I should like to know why. The puppies could walk when he finished them. The calves can too. The pigs can, and the colt, and even the chickens. What is the use of giving us a half-finished baby? He has no hair and no teeth. He can't walk or talk, nor do anything else but squall and sleep. After many days, she got the question settled. She began right where she left off. I know, Mama, why God gave us such a half-finished baby so he could learn our ways and no one else's since he must live with us and so we could learn to love him every time i stand beside his buggy he laughs and then i love him but i don't tell stella nor marvin because they laugh so that is why perhaps that is the reason zebby's kinfolk have come and taken him back to yell county i should not be surprised if he never returned the lanes and the pattersons leave shortly for idaho where our Bobby, has made some large investments. I hope to hear from you soon and that you are enjoying every minute. With much love, your friend, Eleanor Stewart. The letters of Eleanor Pruitt Rupert Stewart are in the public domain. The music was performed by Pretlow Stevenson IV. My thanks to Rebecca Postupak, Jessica Lincoln, and Megan Olivera for their monthly support. Check the Pinterest page for images related to today's episode. Please like the podcast on Facebook, follow on Twitter at Ordinary Letters, or leave a comment and rating at Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. American Epistles is also on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Overcast, and all the places. Thank you very much for listening.